Psalm 120 begins, we're going to see a new section in the book of Psalms together. Uh, You may notice at the beginning of Psalm 120 and the Psalms that follow afterwards, this reference to a song of ascents. And Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are known as these songs of ascent. And what we believe they are a reference to is songs that were particularly utilized, songs that were sung as the Jewish people were making their progression up to Jerusalem to where the house of God was, particularly during the feast days and predominantly at least during the three mandatory feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. There were many Jewish feasts, but those three, remember, were required feast that any Jewish male 20 years old and above, no matter where they lived at that time, they were required by God's word to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate these week-long feasts. They were basically like religious holidays. They would cease from their work. Many times they would travel together with their families and they would make pilgrimage up to Jerusalem where they would spend a week together with the people of God celebrating these religious festivals commemorating the works of God, whether it was Passover and God preserving them and passing over them, uh, keeping the wrath of God from falling upon them because of the blood of the lamb and taking them out of Egypt and ultimately into the promised land or tabernacles celebrating the preservation of God through the wilderness wanderings and how God took care of them. But as they would make their way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, of course, is at a higher elevation. So you always ascended to Jerusalem, both, uh, if you would, geographically or by way of topography, but also spiritually. That was the idea is that you were you were going to a elevated place. You were making the climb up to Jerusalem where it was situated just in a physical sense, the way it was laid out in the land, as well as they saw it as no matter where you were coming from, you always went up to Jerusalem, and they were ascending. And so these psalms, therefore, are referenced as songs of ascent because as the people were ascending up to Jerusalem, which, of course, was the place where God's presence dwelt, where the people of God would assemble to worship, they would utilize these songs as kind of just ways to sing during their pilgrimage, making that ascent up to Jerusalem. Many of them would come together from different territories and groups would meet up, and they'd continue to take the journey together as they went up to the place where God's house was. And you'll notice a lot of these psalms are very short, uh, these psalms of ascent. And so we'll uh, pick up pace here a little bit. We'll try and look through a few of them. And because they are shorter, what I like to do, just for sake of taking in all they have to say to us, is just in a way we typically haven't been, is just to read through the entirety of the psalm. And then we'll go back and kind of unpack it line by line afterwards. So Psalm 120 is the first of these songs of ascent and it tells us psalm 120 verse 1 in my distress i cried to the lord and he heard me deliver my soul O lord from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue what shall be given to you or what shall be done to you you false tongue sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are 
for war. So Psalm 120, you can tell, is basically a psalm where the psalmist is writing in reflection in his frustration over the antagonism that seems to be happening between uh, himself and another party or parties uh, that do not want to live in peace, that don't want to live in harmony, and are verbally attacking and assaulting, not just with words, but notice with very deceptive and dishonest statements, words that are hurtful, deceitful words. He particularly references this lying false tongue. And this was causing a lot of consternation in the heart and the mind of the psalmist. And so that's why he begins in verse one, dealing with the frustration of this saying there, in my distress, I cried to the Lord and he heard me deliver my soul. He prayed, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. So the psalmist begins by doing the wise thing to do whenever we are in distress, which is to cry out to the Lord. And there are lots of different reasons we might find ourselves in distress. Again, the idea of just like when you're out in the middle, let's say, of an, of an ocean and your uh, ship is sinking or capsized and you send out a distress signal, the idea is, is we need help because we're going down. We are in a perilous situation. We're in distress. This is a critical matter. Uh, this is not going to end well, and things are just kind of overwhelming. And so there are many different things that we can go through where we find ourselves distressed. The idea is we're exasperated. We're overwhelmed. We're very stressed out, and we're under deep stress. That's the idea of to be distressed. And whenever we are distressed, the wisest thing to do, as well as honestly, the most effective and helpful thing that we can do is to cry out to the Lord, not necessarily to pursue this avenue of resolving the situation or try and fix this or maybe do something to make the stress temporarily go away and in some way try and use a unhealthy coping mechanism, maybe to, to use some medicinal thing or some substance to try and just pacify ourselves and make us not think about the stressful things that are going on. And lots of people do that, uh, sadly, to only realize that as soon as the uh, chemical effect wears off, uh, you're still distressed and the problem hasn't changed. And many times you're more distressed because now you feel guilty that you did what you did and you realize that now that didn't solve anything. And so the best thing to do is not necessarily to turn to this person or to turn to that or all the other avenues uh, that may try and be efforts to try and resolve the problem we're dealing with. The best thing to do is, is to cry out to the Lord in prayer, is to go to the one who can resolve situations, who has power to do impossible things, who has power to work on our behalf, to defend our reputation, to do what's necessary to deal with people who are maybe causing us trouble or bringing the distress into our life. And that's clearly what the psalmist was dealing with. So he says, in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Notice he didn't pray. He says, I cried out. That's, that's the indication of desperation. I cried out to the Lord in my distress. And here's the good news. You never get voicemail when you cry out to God. He always hears. I mean, it's really amazing if you really do kind of just step back and ponder it isn't to think about the God of all creation. How many voices do you think are crying out to God? 
at once. All the believers, people like you and I who know Jesus, who have a relationship and routinely pray to God and cry out to him with our situations or our problems. And then on top of that, all the people who don't even know God, they may even hate God, but when they're in distress, what do they do? They use God like a 911 operator, right? I did that plenty of times, you know, before I came to know the Lord in my distress, I would cry out and launch up a, a rescue prayer, you know, and, and didn't even have a relationship with God. But yet the amazing thing is that God hears everyone and he's listening and he's always attentive. And not only is he just here, but he actually pays attention. He cares and he has the power to act. And he even has the desire and the interest to act. He wants us to cry out to him. He wants us to incline our voice and, and, and pour out our heart to him. And he says, man, I cried out to the Lord. And he says, the amazing thing is he heard me. And I wonder if in some ways the psalmist wasn't thinking, I wish I could say that for people all the time. Because there's been occasions in all of our lives, right, where we were in distress and we cried out to somebody else. We tried to call somebody and they didn't answer. Or we tried to reach out to a person and maybe they just kind of didn't seem to take a whole lot of interest in our situation. And we felt disappointed or let down. But never that's the case with God, right? He always listens. He bends his ear down. He compassionately takes time to listen to our situation. And he says, boy, I learned a lesson. In my distress, I cried out to the Lord and he heard me. And what did he cry out? Because of his situation, deliver my soul Again, the soul is always a reference to the inward part, the emotions, the will, the thoughts. Lord, my thoughts are going out of control. I'm getting stressed out. Lord, my emotions, I'm getting distressed and overwhelmed. So he says, Lord, please deliver my soul. I'm sinking here. Oh, Lord, from what was the problem? Particularly in some way from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. So there was someone who was saying things that simply were just not true. There were lies being spoken. There were deceitful things being communicated. And he says, man, this is causing a lot of havoc in my life. It's causing a lot of pain. It's causing me problems. People are saying things that are not true. And, and look, that's a very hurtful thing. It's one thing when people speak harshly and critically things that are true about us <laughs> and just kind of put it in our face. And, and, and maybe we've done something wrong and they're at least speaking the truth. It's all the more difficult when people are saying harsh and painful and destructive things against our life that are deceitful and that are complete lies. And they aren't even the truth. They're just dishonest things that are being conveyed and that's a very hurtful thing and a damaging thing that can go on. And so when that happens, the psalmist shows us what we need to do is bring that before the Lord. And he says, Lord, deliver me from this. Defend my cause. He's saying, Lord, I need help in this situation. And then look what he says, verse three. He says, this is what I think should be given in return to those lying lips and deceitful tongues. What shall be given to you? In other words, what do you deserve? Of what shall be done to you, what you sow, you reap. This is what they should reap, he says, you false tongue. <laughs> Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. So he says, in the same way you are piercing me, like shooting arrows of dishonesty and deceitful things, tearing down my reputation, 
doing things to try and ruin my character, to hurt, to cause problems in my life and all the different things that lies do and deceitful tongues cause. He says, what should be done? He says, somebody needs to pierce you. God needs to pierce your heart with, with, with arrows to just pierce you through with the air of your way and what you're doing and with coals of a broom tree. The idea there is bring the heat on, Lord. Bring the heat on them and, and let them suffer some consequence for the horrible things that they're doing. He says, verse 5, Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, these territories, Meshech and Kedar, we see them referenced a few times in the Old Testament. Uh, they're typically references to territories of people outside of the nation of Israel. So these are locations, you might say, of pagan peoples, descendants of Ishmael and those who live in some of the Arabian territories. But there are areas that if you look at them and you trace back the lineage of being outside of the people of God. So in essence, when he says here, woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now he's not saying that literally because Meshech and Kedar, those territories, we're a thousand miles apart. So he's not literally geographically dwelling in both locations at the same time. He couldn't do that. That's a human impossibility. What he's referencing here by describing these territories where these pagan people dwelt who were very barbaric in their practices. They were very cruel and brutal in the way they treated each other as human beings. And so what he's saying is he's saying, woe is me that I'm dwelling among people who are acting like cruel pagan people. They're acting in a way not even like the people of God. They're behaving like cruel, barbaric people who don't know God. You know, isn't it a real tragedy? It's one thing to be in the world, right? And among the world and get mistreated by harsh people who don't know God. And so they have no compassion or sympathy or the love of God at work in their heart. And they're just living in the darkness. But boy, isn't it a whole nother thing? The level of pain and distress it causes when we're among the people of God and those who profess to be the people of God and they're the lying tongue or they're speaking deceitful words and manipulating people and working avenues and very you know, just hurtful ways. And we find ourselves feeling like, man, whoa, I can't believe this is like living a bunch of a bunch of pagans. This is what I would expect in the world, not among God's people. But that that happens from time to time. You know, when we went through our study through the book of first Corinthians, that was part of what Paul's rebuke was to the Corinthian church, that they were behaving in some ways just like and worse than the people out in the world. Right. The sins they were committing, the carnality among them, the the sexual sins, suing one another and taking each other to court and and and, you know, just behaving in ways, carnal division and ripping apart the body of Christ and just the relational carnage. And Paul was saying, you're acting like people out in the world act. This is the church. And what a sad and tragic thing that is, you know, when we allow ourselves, you know, um, as professing people of God to behave in these ways. And the psalmist is so distressed over this. He says, verse six, my soul has dwelt too long, he says, with one who, notice, hates peace. Boy, it's one thing not to want peace, but to be somebody who hates peace, 
The idea is that you literally despise peace. The last thing you would ever give into is a peaceful resolution. Somebody who just, the idea is, to me, if I think of someone who hates peace, I guess it would be fair to say that's somebody who loves war. Right? If you hate peace, you love war, which means you love fighting and contention and hurting people and wounding people and destroying lives because that's all what war is about, right? Struggle to get your own way and bloodshed and carnage at no cost. And he says here, too long, he says, I feel like I've been dwelling among those who hate peace. And he says, verse seven, I am for peace. In other words, I want peace. I would love to have resolution. I would like to have harmony. He says, I I want peace. And that is, should be what we desire as God's child. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, as much as it is possible with you, live peaceably with all men. That should always be the sentiment of all of our hearts as God's people, like the psalmist. I am for peace. We should always be for peace. We should always look for ways. Jesus told us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be like the sons of God. That's something that should be in our heart to want peace, to try and find an avenue towards peace. But he says, though I am for peace, when I speak, they are for war. I'm trying to make peace, but all they want to do is keep the war going. Boy, can you relate to that once in a while? I'm trying to find resolution. I've tried so many times to get peace here, but all they want to do is just keep the war going. They just, they love the battle. They love the carnage and the hurt. And boy, that's a, that's a sad thing here. The psalmist is just expressing his distress in the midst of those things, crying out to God, Lord, please help me. This is difficult, he says. Psalm 121, he says here, a song of ascents, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve you, preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So the psalmist here, in a sense, in the first Psalm references how though people treat us wrongly, how wonderful that though the heartache and the pain comes into our life, that we can go to God and we can ask him to help us in our distress and to bring resolution to our problems and to, to guide us in the midst of hardship and relationships. And now as he comes here to Psalm 121, it seems here that he begins to celebrate the glorious benefit of God's preserving power. And that God is able to protect us and to preserve us in the midst of the difficult relationships or in the midst of dangerous, perilous situations that we find ourselves going through when things are threatening our lives, how the Lord becomes our keeper. And he's always awake and he's always alert and he's always ready to intervene, to preserve and to protect his people. So he says there in verse one, I will... No matter what's going on, I will, he says, lift up my eyes to the hills 
from whence comes my help? He says, verse two, answering the question, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, when he says here, I lift up my eyes to the hills, uh, there were hills that surrounded the area of Jerusalem and Jerusalem is an elevated area. So some think it's potentially that he's indicating I'm going to lift up my, my eyes to the hills. That is, I'm looking to the place where God's presence is. I'm looking to the house of the Lord where I'm looking to the hills because I'm excited. I'm going to, despite what's going on here, I'm going to, I'm going to go up to that elevated place and be in the presence of God with the people of God and, and just celebrate in the house of God. And it will be so nice to get out of this low valley out here in this world. And that could be what he's possibly referring to there. I lift my eyes because my help comes from God's people and God's house. And, and I'm looking to that help. Uh, some think perhaps he's referencing there when he says, I lift my eyes into the hills to the high places. And you remember throughout the Old Testament, there were many a different times where the children of Israel would set up these high places where they would go to higher elevations because some of that was in some ways a, a pagan custom where if they went to a higher or an elevated status, the idea is you were closer to the heavens. So somehow you were closer to the gods. And, and so the idea here could be, I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. So the idea is, you know, wh where can I find help from, even if I go to one of these high places? But he ultimately answers his questions, though others may go to these high places and look for help from this person or from that God or from that place. The psalmist comes back to the bottom line. What he knows mattered most. Where does my help come from? He says, verse two, I know this. My help comes from the Lord. Bottom line. <laughs> my help comes from the Lord. What I have learned in my life, the psalmist says, is no matter what's going on, what valley I'm in, what takes place, no matter where I'm at, I've learned that my help ultimately and always comes from the Lord. Why? Because he's the one who made heaven and earth. He's creator God. And if, and if he can make heaven and earth and he has the power, Genesis 1, to just speak into existence all the created order. And God can, the, the Hebrew literally, you know, created is literally to, to, to make something out of nothing. The Hebrew is bara, to bring forth something out of nothing. That God can just speak, let there be light. Let there, and, and as God's speaking in the book of Genesis, literally it's to create something out of nothing. It's not assembling existing parts. Sometimes people say, well, I made this or I created this. Mm, not necessarily. You assembled that out of existing materials. Very brilliant, very skillful, but you technically didn't create it. You assembled it. You took this and that and this and that, things that already existed, and you put them together and you made, we may say created something new. God does something completely different. God speaks and he creates out of nothing. He speaks things into existence. That's the kind of power that God has. And that was the power God exercised in creation, and the, the Hebrew language indicates that in the story of creation, Genesis chapter 1, when God made the heavens and the earth, he made them out of nothing. He spoke them into existence, exercising his power. Now, that kind of a God is very helpful, right? <laughs> that is why the psalmist says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Because he made the heavens and the earth. And so I know if he can make the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence, whatever kind of help 
I need, whatever kind of help you need, whatever kind of help the psalmist needed, he knew it was not beyond God's capacity to help with. That God could always help, that he's reliable, that he has the power to do anything, to, to perform whatever he speaks and whatever he wants. And boy, just a, a great reminder, my help comes from the Lord. That should always be our go-to awareness. That's where my help comes from, the one who made heaven and earth. And then he begins to speak of God's preserving power. He says, verse 3, he will not allow your foot to be moved. The idea is he won't let you slip. He's able to keep your feet under you so that you don't trip, so that you don't get caught into things and ensnared. The book of Jude tells us in the New Testament, he will keep you and I from stumbling and present us faultless before his throne with great joy and glory. And what a wonderful thing to think about that, that that the Bible tells us that he is able to keep us. Peter writes saying that we're kept by the power of God and the keeping power of God. That as we're journeying and we're just trying to put one foot in front of the other and we have a potential. I know I do anyway. I won't speak for you to periodically stumble or to slip or to make a misstep. Or to get entangled up in this and that. And because, and he says, I'll keep you from stumbling. And that he has the ability to preserve us by his power. And he says here, even when it looks risky, even when it looks like a slippery slope. And you're, oh man, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the next step. I'm afraid I'm going to misstep. He says here, he will not allow your foot to be moved. God can keep you on path. You just stay close to him. And here's the, the key, folks. Don't overcomplicate it. Just walk with God. Because if you walk with God, then he says, I'll keep your foot from slipping. If you just walk on the path that God has for you, God's not going to let you slip. And here's the good news. Even if you did slip, you're not going to be moved. Because why? If you're walking with God, he's right there. He's going to grab your hand. (laughs) And just like ice skating around with somebody who, you know, remember ice skating with my kids when they were young. And and the difficulty was you had to make sure they didn't pull you down, but you would just skate and you would hold them. And then they'd fall or right. Same thing with roller skating. You know, they're basically slipping and falling and you're just holding them up the whole time. And that's kind of what I think the Lord does in our lives. If we just walk with him, just focus on walking with him and he won't allow your foot to be moved. He'll keep your path stable under you. He says, verse three, he who keeps you and notice there's that constant repetition. He keeps you. He keeps you. He keeps you. He who keeps you will not slumber. The idea is fall asleep on the job. He won't slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel. God is the one who has been keeping the nation of Israel. And that's a full-time job. And that's an understatement to keep the nation of Israel. All the antagonism, the hatred, the, the attacks, the terroristic threats throughout generations. God has been preserving the nation of Israel against all the satanic enemies that have come against Israel, hating the devil, exploiting and trying to bring people to destroy Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. He says, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. What a wonderful thing that God, unlike us as human beings, he never needs to rest. He never needs to take a nap. Hard for us to relate to, right? But he says, God never slumbers. He never sleeps. The idea is he is forever alert. 
He's never going to fall asleep on the job. He's never going to oversleep and not show up to help out in a situation. God is always awake. He's always alert. He's always conscious of everything that's going on. And because of that very reality that God never sleeps and never slumbers, guess what that means? You can sleep. I can be at rest. That we don't have to feel like it's 24-7, all dependent upon us. The Bible says even in the book of Psalms, right? He gives his beloved rest. And why? We don't have to stay up all night stressing about this and stressing about that. Why? God's up all night. He can stress about it. And he's the only one that's going to help and fix the problem anyway, right? Particularly when it's something we can't control. We don't have to stay up all night. And oh, I'm and, and we, we do that to ourselves. And God says, I'm awake. I got the night watch. You just go to sleep. You, you, just, you just go to sleep. I'm going to be your help and I'm going to take care of that. And what a wonderful thing to know that even while we are resting as weak, frail human beings, God is never going to tire. God can work while we're sleeping. God can accomplish and take care of things even when we are resting because he is the keeper who never needs to sleep, never needs to slumber. Verse five, he says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The picture there is from that, the brunt of the Mideastern sun as they would wander through the wilderness. Remember, the sun was brutal in that Mideastern climate. But he says, God will, will be like the shade. The idea is God restrains the brunt of the harshness of things that come against us in our lives. Isn't it wonderful that God does that? That he lets us dwell in the shade under the shadow of his wing. The idea is there is, is man, things can be really harsh, right? And they can bear down on us, but, but God is able as our keeper and our preserver to be our shade, to be the one to, to restrain some of the brunt of how harsh it really could be on us. And that God does that in love to preserve and keep us because he knows that we're frail and he knows I can only handle so much. He knows that you and I are weak, that we're frail that we're made of dust and, and in our weakness, he has mercy upon us and shades us from the harshness and severity of things. He says, verse six, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. So again, the picture there is day and night, whether the sun by day or the, the cold evenings as the temperature would drop, the moon by night. Some even believe the idea there is, is all day, every day, and throughout every month of the entire year, because he says the moon by night and the Jews used a lunar calendar. So he could be saying every day, day and night, God is with us to preserve us and to keep us and to protect us. Or he could, if he's using moon by night to refer to the lunar calendar and months of the year, he could be saying day by day, week by week, month by month, all year long. God's got everyone on his calendar and he will be the keeper and the protector to make sure you are preserved as you go through the things that you do journeying on this earth, the harsh things, the difficult things where you need help, critical situations. He says, verse seven, the Lord shall preserve you. He'll sustain you. Notice and preserve you and I from all evil. And that's important because that's the thing that wants to come in and ensnare us. You know, Jesus told us to pray, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. And the evil one is always trying to do things to infiltrate, to rob, kill and destroy. But he says, the Lord shall preserve you from all evil, the evil of the world, 
that tries to wreak havoc in our lives and wreck and ruin us, the evil of the devil, the evil one himself. He says, notice verse seven, he shall preserve your soul. So it's not just physical preservation. It's the preservation of our soul. And boy, that matters more than anything because the fleshly body we're going to dispose of someday, right? Jesus even said, look, people can kill your body, but they can't do anything to your soul. So uh, God will preserve us in every sense, yes, but even if somebody destroys our body, God can still preserve our soul. And that's what matters most. And he can preserve the inward life. And that's what matters more than anything because we want to keep our heart and our inward life right with the Lord. And God's able to preserve us from the infiltration of sin and darkness and evil that presses against us. He says again, verse eight, the Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth. And just in case you were wondering, and even forevermore. So he just doesn't matter what we're doing, whether we're going out or whether we're coming in day and night, month by month, year by year, as we go out every day, the Lord goes with us and he's our shield and our protector, the one who preserves us and sustains us as we go out and as we come in, he is our constant companion. And what a great companion. Talk about a bodyguard. You couldn't get much better than God himself shielding and preserving and sustaining us from this time forth and forevermore. So he celebrates the preservation of God by his power. Psalm 122, he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built a city that is compact together where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. Now here the psalmist seems to be celebrating the wonderful gift it is to be able to not only know God, to have God's help, to have God's preservation and protection, but to be able to enjoy all the benefits of being in the presence of God, because that's what the house of God represented to the, to the Jewish people. It represented the, the house of God, it represented being with God, meeting with God, experiencing God, because his presence, remember, was manifest there among the house of God in a local region. Now, God doesn't limit himself to a physical structure. And so today, God's presence dwells within us. We become the temple of God. But in that day, understand, to the mind of the Jew, as they went up, particularly for these feast days, they were excited. We're going to go and we're going to meet with God and we're going to be in God's presence and enjoy God's presence. And as we spend time fellowshipping with one another and and he's just celebrating that here. That's why in verse one, he says here, I was glad it made me excited, happy, joyful when they said to me, hey, it's time to go up to the house of God again. It's Passover season again. It's, it's Pentecost. Look, now it's tabernacles. And he says, when, when I heard them say, let's go up to the house of God, it's time for the pilgrimage to start. He didn't say, oh, really? Again? Didn't we just do Passover? 
You mean we got to go up to God's house again? Again? Another week of worship? Another whole week where we don't work and we go and, and, and sing worship songs and hear the word of God and pray and hang out with God's people? Oh, bummer. I guess we better do our religious duty. Right? There was not this mindset of, of a drudgery to go to God's house. We're an obligation. Well, I guess, you know, I, you know, we are the people of God. And this is what God's people do. And if I don't, it's, you know, it's, it's a small enough group I travel with. They'll know if I'm not there. They'll know. They'll, they'll see it. Because, you know, over there, a few farms over, they have a big group. And so they don't even know when you go to the house of God because they got a big group. The, the psalmist heart is completely different than that, isn't it? I mean, this is the right heart. He says, when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord, he said, yippee, man. <laughs> this time again? Man, I, I've been waiting to go up to the house of God. And he was glad to go to the house of God. He was glad to go worship. He was excited and enthusiastic. And you know what? That should be our heart to go to the house of God, too. I don't say this just because I'm the pastor. You say, well, of course, you're glad to go. You get to talk for an hour. That's, that's not the only reason. I, I loved going to the house of God as soon as I met God. That's how I knew something radical happened in my life. I knew something happened in my life, and I was the first one in my family to get saved. Uh, and it was a revolutionary experience when I met Jesus. But the one thing I knew is all of a sudden, I, I, I almost found, are you going to do something on this night? I mean, you can't you like have a seven night a week thing? And there was something about just a gladness and an enjoyment. I just wanted to be in God's house and be with God's people. It was just a delightful, enjoyable thing. I couldn't wait till the next opportunity. And there was this enthusiasm. There was just a wonderful thing of man, just the blessing of being in God's presence and the sweetness and being with God's people, Right. And, and that should really be where our heart's at. If it's in a right place, we should be glad when people are going to the house of the Lord and we should be glad to get to go to the house of the Lord. I don't know about you. I'm so glad to be a part of a church family and to be able to be with God's people and enjoy what God does when we go to his house. He says, verse two, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. In other words, we remember what it was like to be standing there within the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Boy, I remember last time. Can't wait to see what God's going to do this time as we go up to the house of the Lord. Because he says, I remember last time when we were standing there within your gates. And again, oh, Jerusalem, it's just that reference. That's where the temple was, where the, the people of God gathered. So this is always what the mindset is when he's saying these things. He says, verse three, Jerusalem is built, a city that is compact together now again many of them came from village areas kind of in more rural territories where jerusalem was built up like an urban center so it was vastly different when they went up to jerusalem it was compact there was a lot more there it was kind of the urban area because that was the central location where god's people would assemble together frequently where god's house was where they worshiped so he says verse four where the tribes go up this is what we do the tribes of the Lord. This is what we do. The tribes of God's people. We go up to the house of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel. And why? To give thanks to the name of the Lord. We go up to just say, thank you, God, for getting us through this last season. Thank you, God, that you kept us 
from Passover to Pentecost to Tabernacles and back again. Lord, thank you for what you've been doing in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we know you. Thank you, God, that we can come here and be together with you. Thank you, God, that the shedding of blood gives us forgiveness of our sin. And God, thank you that we can experience your presence. He says, we go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. In verse 5, he says, not only do we go to worship and to experience God, but he says, there also in Jerusalem, the thrones are set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Again, thrones are places of governance where ruling happens and so part of the going up to god's house that's also where governmental in a sense decisions were made where god would give guidance and where god would rule over his people and at times god would in a governmental way he would address things in his people's lives and correct and and he would in a sense rule over them and they said this is where thrones are where at times god judges wrongdoing in our lives And God deals with sin. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Peter that the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. You know, we often, Lord, judge the world. I can't believe they're doing this now. Now they're doing that. Now they're pushing this. And and the Bible says that our real mentality as God's people should be that, Lord, judgment should begin among us. Can't believe that we're doing this, Lord, as the church. Shouldn't be surprised they're doing that out in the world. But sometimes I think we fail to recognize that there's a a time for judgment even among the Lord's people when we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing and God needs to to correct us, to rule over us to a greater degree. He says, verse 6, and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Now to pray for the peace of Jerusalem was good then and it has always been good because here's Jerusalem and the, the word Jerusalem literally means city of peace. But you know anything is, is you know, kind of clear that the furthest thing Jerusalem has ever been has been a city of peace. Because it is the place where God's presence has manifest. It's the place where God's purposes have worked through. And because of that, there has been more antagonistic uh, attacks and things that have happened besieging the city of Jerusalem. I mean, look throughout history. I mean, numerous times that city was besieged, ravaged, attacked. The Bible tells us in in Zechariah that the city of Jerusalem will always be a cup of trembling among the nations. People are like drunken, you know, individuals crazy over the city of Jerusalem. And again, there's nothing there per se by way of natural resources and all these things that everybody in the world would be so crazy to want to have such a vicious intent towards this city and to want to be in control of it and because of that there is constant attack and it's satanic is why it's because it is the epicenter of everything god has been doing through human history in connection to the messiah and for that very reason there's constant attack against it spiritually it manifests itself in circumstances but therefore as god's people we should always be praying for the peace of jerusalem Lord, bring your peace there. Don't let success happen when horrible and satanic attack is coming against that city. Lord, it is your city. It is the place where you are going to return to Jesus and put your feet down and rule against. Of course, ultimately, peace won't come to Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace rules there. But he says in the interim, we should be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And he says, may they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palace. So may there be a peace and a calm 
and may there be a prosperity among the, the people there that dwell within that area. Again, wanting them to prosper. He says, verse 8, for the sake of my brethren and my companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Again, why? Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So again, because that's where God's house was, the psalmist said, look, wherever God's house is, I'm going to pray for what's going on at God's house. And I'm going to ask for God's peace to be there and that the devil's attacks would not succeed against God's house and God's people. And I'm going to pray that, that God, you would prosper what's happening there among the house of God. And the same way they prayed that and sought the good of Jerusalem, that's what we really should be praying and doing as well for the house of God that we're connected to. Granted, we don't go to Jerusalem and where the temple and the house of God was, but we're citizens, the Bible says, of the new Jerusalem, the holy city. That's our citizenship. And so in a spiritual way, we should be praying for similar things for the house of God today. We should be praying for peace among God's house and that Satan's attacks and efforts would not succeed. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We should be praying, Lord, bring that to pass. Don't let these satanic things ravage and ruin what you're trying to do among the house of God. Lord, instead, prosper the house of God. Let it be fruitful. May good and successful things spiritually come out of your house. And Lord, for the sake of your people, he says, may we seek your good. And these are things we should be doing for God's house among his church today. In the same way, wanting that spiritually to a much greater degree. Let's do Psalm 123. It's a short one, so we can work our way through it quickly, and we'll conclude there. He says, Psalm 123, Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of the maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease with the contempt of the proud. So here the psalmist cries out for help because of those who were notice, he says in verse 40, identifies them, those who were proud, arrogant, and in their pride and their arrogancy, it seemed like they were at ease. Here they were being proud and being arrogant, arrogant and proud against God, arrogant and proud and therefore being harsh and cruel, despising people, mistreating people, scorning the people of God. And he says, and Lord, it seems like they're at ease. It seems like they're doing all this horrible, proud, rotten stuff, mistreating people. And it seems like they're, they're having the easy street. And Lord, he says, we're filled instead with the contempt, exceedingly filled with contempt that comes from them and scorn that comes from them. Again, the word contempt means to, to look upon something as worthless or to despise or to have hatred and animosity towards. And he says, we're treated with contempt as if we have no value at all. And, and in their arrogancy, they treat us with contempt and, and proud and hurtful ways and scorn us and mistreat us. And he says, Lord, please help. Lord, this is hurtful. This is hard. 
He says, verse 1 here, Lord, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Lord, please. You're in heaven, but you see what's going on. Lord, I'm looking to you. You see what they're doing to us. Lord, please, he says. Intervene. And I love the analogy he uses here in verse 2 and 3 to ask for God's help. He said, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters and the eyes of maid to the hand of her mistress. You know, in the ancient culture, whether it was a master or a mistress, and they had, you know, household servants that would operate and take care of things. A lot of times, by cultural practice, they didn't even need to speak words. They just had certain hand gestures. They could just point to a certain thing or maybe snap their fingers or, or kind of you know, indicate something. And it was a very common practice, especially if they wanted to have decorum among their house and really seem like that they managed their household well. The servant knew that it was their responsibility to keep their eye on their master and to pay attention to any little cue of guidance that their master might give. And so whether it was their master or their mistress, whether a you know, male or a female, that servant's job was I need to pay attention to the smallest little cues of guidance, just a little hand gesture. Maybe they'd point to a, a, you know, a, a, a bowl or to a basket and just pick that up and come over here and you know, put more on my plate or fill up my you know, a guest teacup or whatever or go take care of this. And so they said, as the servant looks to the master and all they need is the tiniest little indication And they knew exactly what that gesture meant. And they kept their eye on their master. That was their one priority. He says, in the same way, we don't know how to fix this situation. We don't know how to solve what's going on. But Lord, our eyes are on you. We're looking to you, Lord. Guide us, Lord. Give us some indication, Lord. Gesture, do something, Lord. Just gesture in some way. And, you know, that's what we should be wanting ourselves. We should want to be so led by our master that perhaps all he would do is just in a sense, all he's got to do is kind of just point to something. You know, sometimes I wonder, Lord, all I need is, Lord, I'm just looking for this. Here, this is visual, folks. Up here, don't fall asleep yet. Lord, is it this or this? That's all I want to know, Lord. (laughs) Just, is it a this, Lord? Or is it this? And how wonderful that God wants to guide us. And he says, Lord, until you have mercy on us, we're going to look to you, to your hand to show us what it is that you're doing and what it is that you want until you have mercy on us. And why is the psalmist saying until you have mercy on us? Because the idea is saying, Lord, we are so weak. And sometimes, Lord, we are so clueless. Please have mercy. Lord, I'm pretty dumb. I am anyway. Maybe you're not. I'll speak for myself. Lord, I'm just a sheep. And Lord, a lot of times I have no clue. So Lord, could you please make it blatantly obvious? Thumb up or thumb down, Lord. Just just real simple. Just make it so evident, Lord. What do you want me to do? I'm looking to you. You're my master. I'm the servant. I just want to do what your will is. Because you know what? If we know what God's will is and we comply with that as a servant, that's going to work out best for us. If we just follow what he directs us to do, that merciful guidance on our weakness and our lack of knowing what to do, that is the absolute best end for us anyway. Because then we're going to do God's will. And God's will is going to be most blessed in our lives in the most abundant way. Let's stand.